I'm Rob Mark from JetWine.com, and this is a special edition of the Airplane Geeks podcast. On January 12, 2024, NASA held a public unveiling ceremony for the X-59 supersonic research aircraft, a part of NASA's Quest mission. Our main man, Micah, and I interviewed two of the test pilots, David Nils Larson and James Clueless, the day before the unveiling. And we wanted to share that interview with you just as soon as possible. Now, you might be wondering why the X-59 is so important. Well, commercial supersonic flight over land is prohibited in most countries because of the objectionable sonic boom it produces. NASA and Lockheed Martin have a theory, though, that an aircraft like the X-59 could turn that boom into a less annoying thump. NASA's Quest project will fly the X-59 over populated areas and gauge the public's reaction to the thump. If the project is successful, it could lead to relaxing the supersonic ban and perhaps spur on a new age of supersonic air travel. Max Flight was around, but still hadn't quite found his voice. If you listen carefully, though, you'll hear the one question he was able to croak out. Now, here's our interview. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is your friend, main man Micah, and joining me tonight is the amazing and wonderful man from Jetwine himself, Rob Mark. <laughs> also joining us is Max Flight, whose voice is a little off from a week cold that's been going on with him for two weeks. So I'm sort of hosting tonight, and uh, Max will join us and maybe ask some questions as we go along. So you're going to kind of be a stand-in, uh, Max, are you? I'm pinch hitting for, well, I used to pinch, pinch hit for Trescott, and I'm, now I'm pinch right. hitting for, for Max Flight. I like Flight. pinch hitter. Okay. Today, we have some amazing guests. NASA has the Quest mission going on. They'll be using the X-59 research aircraft to collect data that can make supersonic flight over land possible in the U.S. and across the globe. The mission has two goals to design and build NASA's X-59 research aircraft, which includes technology that will reduce the loudness of the sonic boom, and to fly the X-59 over U.S. cities and collect data from communities about the sound and share the public reaction to the quieter sonic thumps with the FAA and international regulators. Then the regulators can consider in writing new sound-based rules to lift the ban on supersonic overland flying. Now, joining us are two X-59 pilots. We have David Nils Larson, who goes by Nils, and James Less, who obviously is going to go by Clue. And Nils is a research test pilot at NASA's Armstrong Flight Research Center in Edwards in California, and he's NASA's lead pilot for the X-59 aircraft. And Clue, he's also a research pilot and aerospace engineer at NASA's Armstrong Flight Research Center at Edwards, and he's a project pilot for the X-59 aircraft. You guys, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thanks Thanks for having us. So to start out with, while many of our listeners may be familiar with the X-59, can you tell us a little bit about it in general? How's the design different? What's it all about? The uh, X-59, it's designed from the ground up to produce a quiet supersonic boom. We're, we're calling it a sonic thump. And it's a uh, short answer is very long and skinny. It's about 100 feet long with a 30 foot wingspan. And that is really the key to quieting the sonic boom, turning it into a thump. Now, in looking at it, you know, you said it's incredibly long and it's long and pointy. It looks like you've got a lot of fuselage ahead of you uh, from the from the cockpit. Is that how it works, kind of by breaking that sonic boom a little more slowly over a period of space? 
Kind of. I mean, you're, you're spreading that energy out, you know, a little bit. If, if you think about a typical, you know, supersonic uh, airplane, every time the angles change on the airplane, you get a shock wave coming off. And those uh, shock waves, they can uh, kind of come together and reinforce each other. So kind of the idea of that big, long nose is you got a pretty good, like it's, it's a 38-foot long nose, so it's not small. So that's got uh, those parallel shocks 38 feet, you know, apart. So it's hard for them to come together and reinforce each other. So it tends to be that, that front shock or that boom, boom, when you hear a sonic boom, that front boom is kind of a little bit uh, muffled. It looks amazing. I mean, it really looks like a spaceship. How much of the technology and hardware is, is actually all brand new? Other than the airframe itself, we have used a lot of off-the-shelf parts and components. We like to call it a Franken-jet. Many <laughs> X-planes are like this. They're Instead of developing all new components, we want to use things that are already proven. So the engine is from a Super Hornet F-18. The uh, landing gear is F-16. A lot of the uh, internal systems, hydraulics, and uh, environmental controls come from the uh, F-18. The uh, stick is from an F-117. The throttles are from the Super Hornet. Yeah, F-16 fuel system. F-16 fuel system. The uh, ejection seat and the canopy are actually the rear cockpit of a T-38. Um, and that way they didn't have to prove a, a new ejection seat, and uh, that saved a lot of uh, work and testing to get us yeah. to flight sooner. We also have a King Air, basically, uh, or partial King Air panel, you know, for our instruments when it comes to it. So it's, pro, Proline Fusion. It's a modified Rockwell Collins Proline Fusion. Yeah. The other system. unique thing to the airplane that's sort of new technology is because of that really long nose, uh, there's no forward windscreen. Because, you know, so when you look at that thing, you're like, hey, hot. so, you know, we're Lindbergh in it a little bit because there's no way to see out the front. But the way we did that is we uh, put a virtual windscreen in is there's a camera on the top. It's a 4K UHD camera. And the bottom has a camera that will come out on a trapeze once we're below, I don't know, 250, 259, something like that. Uh, it'll come out and uh, we use that one. And that one's made of a Collins system that they usually use for HUDs. So it's not as high resolution as the upper camera, and they stitch that together, an image, you know, that's up there in front of us. So, you know, for us, we look out the front, it looks, you know, it's, it's a lot like probably the UAV guys do when they go, you know, fly something. But um, so far in the sim, it's not bad. So I got to ask you this. You guys are test pilots, and, you know, when everybody thinks of test pilots, they think of the right stuff, which obviously you guys have. How do you get to the point where you're flying this Frankenjet. What have you flown before, and how did you guys each get into test piloting something as amazing as, as the X-59? Well, a pretty long story. Um, started back uh, in college. I went to college, um, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, studied aeronautical engineering, and through the Air Force ROTC program, I was commissioned, went to Air Force pilot training, uh, flew the F-111, flew the F-117 after that, a little bit of time in the T-38, and then got myself accepted to the Air Force Test Pilot School, which is where I learned how to be a test pilot. Spent most of the rest of my Air Force career testing F-16s. And when I retired from the Air Force, uh, Nils actually hired me 
uh, it was about 13 years ago, hired me to fly at NASA. And I've been flying F-15s, F-18s, T-34, King Air, even our 747. Okay. And the more, the more you fly, I think the better prepared you are for something new. Yeah. So I started out in high school, had a really good instructor that uh, handed me a book, and the book was the right stuff. And he said, read this. And I went, why? And he said, just read it. And I read it, and I went, I couldn't put it down. And I was like, ooh, I know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> so I then charted how I had to get to, you know, go do something like this. So uh, that drove me to join the Air Force, go to the Air Force Academy, uh, you know, graduated from the Air Force Academy, and actually learned to fly gliders there and was a glider instructor. Uh, went to pilot training. They plowed me back to be a first assignment instructor pilot in the Mighty Tweet back then. Uh, when I got done with that, I went off to fly the U-2, finished that, and got accepted to test pilot school, finished that, uh, ended up going down, believe it or not, to fly F-15s, an airplane no one's ever heard of called the RU-38, and the T-38C, uh, and then uh, got accepted to go do an exchange with the Navy to teach at the Navy test pilot school, came back to the be the U-2 flight test and depot commander out here, uh, finished up as the deputy group commander out here at Edwards and then moved, whatever that is, three, five miles down the flight line uh, to NASA about uh, 17 years ago. Since I've been at NASA doing, you know, flight control research, uh, supersonic research, we've done stuff at, like, uh, we've done a lot of airborne science stuff. I flew the DC-8, you know, uh, it's about to retire here pretty soon. And the 15, 16, 18, T-34, ER2, you know, that kind of stuff. So lots of different airplanes and uh, all fun. Both of you have flown some really tough aircraft. The, the F-117 was not known to be an easy aircraft to fly, and certainly the U-2 is also not particularly easy to fly. I'm sure that those skills are coming into handy testing a new aircraft like this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. I want to back up, uh, Nils, to, to when you were in high school and that, that teacher gave you the book and said you ought to read this. I mean, I remember when I was in high school and if a teacher gave me a book and said, read this, I'd go, oh, my God. You know, we'd all groan or something. Right. But he must have seen something in you that, that you already had a kind of an interest in this or yeah. did he? I was a science nerd. My parents are scientists. They, you know, college professors and you know, and he was a great, you know, for the teachers that are out there, you never know the impact that you're going to make on someone's sure. life by just taking 30 seconds and, and caring about somebody and thinking about them and doing something like he did. You know, that was Glenn Berkheimer handed me that book and, you know, and, and he knew me well enough that I was probably going to read it. And he told me a little bit of what it was about. And so, you know, I, you know, I was interested in the space program and that kind of thing. And, you know, obviously that's, you know, a big part of that book. Uh, so he knew that I would be into that book. And sure enough, you know, like I said, I couldn't put it down. And that pretty much charted my entire adult life. So. <laughs> and how could you not love that book? I mean, yeah, I'm sure we've all seen the film and the film is a great film, but the book was so much better. And it's it reads like fiction, but it's it, it, all of it's true. It, it, you, you can't put it down once you start it. Exactly. So just in general, because some of our listeners will know this, some don't. What is the speed of sound? We're, we're talking, I mean, Mach 1, yes, but 750 miles an hour at, at, at sea level. What's the speed of sound and, and, and where do you go? It's about 760 uh, miles an hour at, at sea level. 
as the temperature gets colder, the speed of sound actually decreases a little bit. Well, the atmosphere also gets uh, thinner. So at altitude, it is a little bit slower than that, maybe about 660 miles an hour up at 55,000 feet. And obviously, you guys have both flown aircraft where you've, you know, gone faster, more than Mach 1, many, many times. Is there a difference when you're flying the X-59 in terms of that, that feel? No, we don't expect there to be. Um, we're going to go, we're not necessarily, the X-59 is not going to be faster than other airplanes, right. uh, but we are, it is designed to cruise at Mach 1.4. Yeah, so, I mean, he and I went 1.4 yesterday in the F-15 together, so we're we're used to doing that. And, you know, we fly the F-18, we fly the F-16, we fly the, you know, it's not a whole lot different, you know, every time you break the sound barrier. For most people, you know, we get to do it all the time. You know, we're hoping that someday all of you will be able to be a passenger in the back at least and go supersonic, and that's hopefully where all this is leading. But, you know, you don't really notice other than the Mach gauge says 1.0, or you might see the uh, the altimeter swing a little bit. Right jump as, around. Yeah. yeah, right as you go through Mach 1. But otherwise, you don't really notice. So. Well, now you said there's a simulator for this aircraft too, yeah. right? And and how did they create the simulator? Was it based on something else like the rest of the airplane, uh, kind of off-the-shelf parts on some things? Or was it, you know, a bunch of guys working in the garage starting from scratch? They, they yes, started, yeah. <laughs> both. <laughs> <laughs> they, they mostly started from scratch. Um, it was built here at NASA. They took the plans from Lockheed and built the cockpit to be the exact dimensions of the real cockpit. Yeah. So there are actual parts that are the exact same parts, you know, and there are some that are different. Like it has a 117 stick in it, but the throttles in it are gaming throttles from an F-18. They're not the real F-18 throttles. So, they're you know, most of the stuff is the exact same thing that's in the actual airplane. Well, to, to sort of go on with that question, how do you simulate something that's never flown? Well, it, it's an engineering simulator. They they take the best models, computer models that they have um, for the way the structure will behave, the way the flight controls will behave, um, the aerodynamics, the stability of the aircraft. And I hate to say it's a best guess, yeah. um, but I, I'll take... Lockheed Martin's best guess any day. There, there's some very smart engineers working on this, and and with modern computers, their their guess, their initial guess is going to be very close. We're going to go fly it, and we're going to find differences, and we'll update the simulator and make it better later. But we expect when we get out there, the airplane's going to fly pretty much like the simulator. What are each of your roles in the test program? Well. There's three test pilots on the project. So the other test pilot that's not here with us right now is the Lockheed Martin test pilot, and that's uh, Dan Dog Kanan. And he, you know, because the Lockheed's actually building it, he's actually had a huge hand in a lot of the design uh, of the airplane. So he is, you know, consulted with Clue and I, and he'll come up with ideas for displays and, you know, and make this like this or like this airplane kind of thing. And so he's a lot more sleeves rolled up into the nitty-gritty and design of the airplane, and he probably knows it better than anybody. Uh, so he's the one that's uh, doing that, and, and it's great having three pilots because that way hopefully you don't have a tie when it comes to what are we going to do. Um, and it's worked out really well. I mean, there are times when uh, we have a button in there we call the clue button because 
Dan and I were kind of like, no, nah, we don't want that in there. And, and Clue kind of went, well, I really think we need this. And I really, and we said, well, I don't care that much about it. Yeah, okay, we'll put it in there. And now we're glad we did because once we've done some simulation thing, we're like, oh, I'm really glad we put the Clue button in there. So I think there's at least one thing that every one of us, you know, was the odd man out, but, you know, made their case. And the other people went, yeah, okay, I'm not wedded to, you know, being against that. Let's go ahead and do it. And in the end, you know, they, the person proved to be right. And, you know, everybody went, oh, that's actually a good idea. I'm glad we listened to you. So that's been Dan's role. Um, my role is kind of, you know, somewhat, you know, I'm probably more involved all the time when it comes to a lot of the meetings, I go to a lot of meetings, a lot of meetings, you know, and I spare a clue for most of that kind of stuff. We, we both review the flight manual. We both review the test plans, you know, all that kind of stuff that goes in there. But generally speaking, I cover a lot more of the meetings, you know, and spare him from that kind of stuff. And then I don't know, what do you, what more do you want to say about your role? Well, in, in addition to all the things Nil said, Believe it or not, I'm working on a lot of the planning for what we're calling phase two and phase three after we've got the airplane flying and checked it out and made sure it's safe to fly. Then we're going to be out measuring the the shock waves and beyond that, taking it out and flying it around the country over different communities to get uh, community response data. And I'm spending time in the simulator developing those profiles, things we're not going to fly for several years um, we need to, to know what those are going to be so we can make sure that as we start flying the airplane that it's going to be capable of doing what we need. Well, now, this hasn't even had any taxi tests or anything, right? right? Yeah, no. right. Yeah. Okay. Right now, it's it, like rollout is tomorrow. So, and if you want to go check out the rollout, you can find it there at, uh, you know, NASA Plus, our streaming, or you can, if you have NASA TV, you could see it there, mm-hmm. or we have a YouTube page uh, or, you know, worst comes to worst, just Google it and, you know, you can find it there. So, so you can, you can check that out there. Um, and, you know, and the rollout in this case is, you know, kind of, I, I jokingly, I think today called it to somebody else, a cotillion, you know, it's kind of like, you know, coming out and showing everybody, Hey, here, here it is and introducing it to the public. But then, uh, it's kind of right now in between production phase and testing phase. We have done a little bit of testing already. You know, we will do some changes and a little things, tweaks of, you know, the, the building of the airplane. But right now we're kind of really heading into the phase where you're going to see a lot of ground test, eventually into taxi test, and then, you know, eventually into flight. And then, you know, all those baby steps that we do while we're uh, building up to building that entire envelope for the airplane. But I got to ask you two other questions. One is a follow-up uh, to what you said, Nils, uh, about the clue button. What does the clue button do? That's the first one. I'll let Clue explain. Oh, it, it just changes the uh, some of the displays that we have on our heads-up display. To there's two different modes for the uh, flight path vector. So one of them one of them keeps it in the middle, and yeah. the other lets it drift. And so yeah. I think there's times when you want it in one position, times when you want it in the other. And so I thought it was important enough to have that on the throttle so that you can flip back and forth between the two. Yeah, and he was right. Yep, yep, makes sense to me. The other question is, when you get into the, the next phases of it, you're going to be flying it over land and flying it over places so that you can get the public's reaction to the sound. I think about that, and here I am, I'm in Portland, Maine, and I'm close to the Portland jet port, and as a 737 is coming in to land on 2-9, and it's going over the harbor, there's always somebody calling the airport and complaining, it's way too loud, and why are you doing that? So how do you take that into account when people are complaining about noise 
we, even when it's not noisy. So how is that testing going to go, and how are you going to be able to gather that public data? And what altitude are you going to be at? So our, our design cruise condition is uh, 1.4 Mach at 55,000 feet. So they're not going to hear the aircraft noise. The, the jet noise, that's all going to be silent. But if it were not shaped the way it is, if it were, say, an F-15 doing that, there would be a loud sonic boom that would travel all the way to the ground, and, and everybody would certainly hear it. We're going to have this, a quiet sonic thump is the design. We're going to have uh, a whole host of volunteers in the community. We're planning to field an iPhone app or a smartphone app so that you can uh, record your uh, opinions. I want one. I want one. <laughs> um, it'll be a combination of we won't tell tell them we're coming and we'll see if they notice. And if they hear something, they're supposed to get on the app and say, I heard it, and then report how it affected their day. Um, in other cases, we'll tell maybe tell them exactly when it's coming and see if they can hear it. And then and the best case, I guess, is that people don't really hear it. And then we'll fly at some lower altitudes, try to make the boom a little bit louder and actually find out where that threshold is, um, what is what is acceptable, what is too disruptive to people's day. And will this be both day and night operations so that you know whether you're waking people up or not? There should be a combination of that. Um, we've got scientists looking at that very question, what how many different times of day do we need to to do this? Um, we're not going to go out there to try to wake people up, but we do have to at least do some in, in the evening or nighttime and, and show that it's quiet enough that it's not going to bother people. Yeah, and most people don't realize that they've heard a sonic boom because thunder is a sonic boom. Yeah. So it's not quite like an airplane because, you know, thunder, you get the one kablam, you know, where an airplane, you get a boom, boom, you get the front and the yeah. tail shock. So uh, so it is a little bit different when it comes down to it. And, you know, hopefully our sonic thump sounds a little bit more like distant rolling thunder or somebody slamming a car door next door, uh, you know, next door. And hopefully it won't even interrupt your uh, conversation. Well, yeah, I have a question about the uh, the operation the first time. I mean, this is still an X plane. And, and yes. so while you plan many things, uh uh, to go the way you want, what kind of precautions do you as test pilots take uh, that are kind of uh, maybe ge- sort of generic to a new airplane so that you don't overtrust it, you know, right off the ground or something? Well, one of the very first things, we're, we're planning the first flight profile very carefully. What do we want to try to do on that first flight? What do we not want to do? One of the general common practices is, don't even put the gear up on the first flight. Then we don't have to worry about whether it's coming back down. So we'll just leave the gear down. We'll fly a very limited envelope and then make sure that we're ready to come back and land. Yeah. Your objective on the first flight is to land. Go up, <laughs> go up, come down. Yeah. So to get it See, back that's always been my objective on every flight, yeah, actually, exactly. is to land. But ah, <laughs> anyway. then after that, we will each flight will expand that envelope a little bit more and We'll have a, a whole control room of engineers watching all their data as we go and clearing us from one point to the next. It's a very controlled build-up process. Yeah. And is it a single-person cockpit? It yes. Is. Yep. I would think that one of the advantages to this, to not having a windscreen and having 
the video as you see it, is that is that something that can be shared on the ground so that others can be sort of watching over your shoulder? Yeah, actually, they will TM or you know telemeter that uh, the image to the ground so they can be watching. We'll have a chase airplane also, so we'll have an F-15 or an F-18 mm-hmm. flying next to the other airplane to help be a lookout and also look over the airplane, make yeah. sure there's no problems with it. Will one of you be flying chase, or is it somebody completely different? In general, we would expect one of us, of the three of us, one's in the X-59, one's flying chase. Probably the third is in the control room as another uh, another set of eyes and somebody with the knowledge of what the airplane's like to fly. So how do you decide who's going to fly the X-59 the first time? That's what I was just going to ask. <laughs> yeah. Paper, rock, scissors. No, uh, the uh, first flight will be uh, the, the Lockheed test pilot. It'll be uh, Dan Kanan. So, you know, they technically still own the airplane until they transfer it over to NASA. So he will do the first flight. And as we said before, he's the most knowledgeable person uh, of the airplane. I mean, he's designed major portions of it. So, you know, he'll get the first flight. And then somewhere in there, you know, after a few flights, Clue or I will get to step in. And when do you expect that first flight? Well, there's a lot of a lot of stuff still has to happen. As I said, we're we're just starting into the ground testing now. So, you know, and it's flight test. So you're going to find stuff wrong in the ground test. So, so we usually don't like to put a date out there because you can pretty much guess that we're not flying on that date. So, you know, if I were to give you a date, that's when I should actually go out there and make my hotel reservations to go on vacation with yeah. my family. So we're hoping to fly, you know, this year, mm-hmm. uh, and we're pushing pretty hard for that. And, and, you know, we'll see how it goes. It really just depends on how a lot of that ground testing goes. And then how much testing uh, does the aircraft actually get in terms of, say, flight hours or something before you guys can say, okay, we're, we're on to something now. We can share this data. Huh? What is it? Fifty? It's about fifty or yeah. yeah I mean, sixty to ninety hours. I yeah, think. I think it's it's roughly what we're what we're planning. It really depends on how obviously how it's going yeah. when it comes down to it. But I think it's a minimum of fifty flights that we yeah. figure. But in reality, it'll probably be a little bit more than that. Yeah. If the engineers see something of concern, they're going to have us go back and check that out a little more carefully. Yeah. Um, if everything goes smoothly, we march through the test plan and get it done quickly. Well, and, and the unique nature of this X-plane is most X-planes live right here at Edwards or Pax River. You know, they don't go out into the, as I say, out into the wild, yeah. you know, out where all of your listeners are, you know, coming to a town near you. But this X-plane is going to go do that. So we need to make sure that it's safe before we go take it out there and fly in among the general populace. So uh, there's, you know, most... Uh, X-planes wouldn't have, you know, a flight management system, wouldn't have an FMS in it. Our airplane has an FMS in it, you know, because it's, you know, where we're going and how we're going to go fly it. So, Well, what's the range on the airplane? Probably good six to 800 miles, yeah. not going supersonic. If, yeah. if we're just trying to get across the country, we're going to we're going to fly it at a, a lower altitude and slower speed. Yeah, about like a T-38, we think. Yeah. Now, with, with the Concord, which is the only thing I can compare it to, you know, when it wasn't flying supersonic, it was burning a whole lot more fuel. Is that different with uh, with the X-59? No, because we're still we're still an afterburner, you know. So uh, and the Concord actually only used, you know, 
you find out all kinds of stuff when you're on a project like this. They only really used Afterburner for takeoff, and then they used it to get through Mach 1, and then once they got through there, they could bring it out of Afterburner, and it would slowly just keep increasing in speed up till it got, you know, over Mach 2. Uh, this airplane, you were required to pretty much be in an Afterburner. Uh, you know, we can probably be over Mach 1 just in mill power, uh, depending on the condition, but most of the time, we're going to have to be an afterburner to get to the conditions that we want to get to. So it's going to be, you know, when we're doing our missions, they're going to be, uh, they're designed, I think, what, uh, phase three, two passes, and right. probably around an hour of flight time, hour 15 maybe. The profiles we're doing are actually hour 15 to an hour 20 maybe. And when you do your, your test flights, are you running it through maneuvers? Are, are you doing to find out where it stalls and, 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 you know, power on, power off? I mean, or is it just you're just flying it to keep control of it? Good question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you don't want to stall this thing. No, no I, I wouldn't think you would, but, but, you, but you also want to know where it is. Yeah, yeah you, you have to slow it down, and, and we have systems in place to keep the, you know, we have AOA limiters, you know, to keep us from approaching the stall. So we will have to go and check out those. AOA limiters to make sure that they work, uh, you know, so there are different pieces like that that go. But, yeah, we will have to do a whole gambit of different maneuvers, you know, throughout the envelope, uh, whatever they want us to do for checking out the loads to make sure the structure is okay, you know, make sure the handling qualities at each of these different points. And then you're looking for the subsystems and how well, you know, the hydraulics and the environmental control system how, you know, all those are working for you, uh, and then you have your team of 20 to 30 people on the ground all monitoring that stuff. I mean, just from looking at the shape of it, it looks like, and, and again, I don't know anything about this, but it looks like you would be really flying it in Coffin Corner all the time. Is is, is that what's happening with it? You can get yeah. there, certainly. Yeah. Um, one of the more challenging things we think we're going to have to do flying and operationally is when we're done with our high altitude supersonic pass, we have to slow down and go down. If we keep the speed up and just point the nose down, we're going to overspeed the aircraft. So we need to really get it slowed down. But at 55,000 feet, Mach 1 is still, that's down just above 200 knots uh, equivalent airspeed. And so now we're starting to approach our, our angle of attack limiter. So we're going to probably descend almost on the limit as we get the aircraft down to thicker air where it'll fly better. Yeah. There's no speed brake, no spoilers or anything on this airplane that you've, you've seen. And you can go, you know, online and look at pictures of the X-59. It's pretty slick. You know, it, uh, you know, and it's not a high G airplane either. This is more like BizJet kind of, you know, two and a half G airplane. Mm -hmm. So it's just a really fast two and a half G airplane. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, after all of the testing is done and NASA says, wow, we've, this is, this is going to work. I mean, how does a, a private company, uh, say, I don't know, let me say Gulfstream, just for lack of anything else. I mean, do, do they just say, hey, we'd really like to have a copy of those blueprints to uh, uh, include that in our next airplane? Or how does the practical end of all your testing get transferred to the civilian side? Great question. So one of the main products would be the computer code that is used to predict what it's going to sound like, what the sonic booms are going to be. Um, we will refine that code based on all the data that we take flying the airplane, and that's what we would provide to industry. Basically, we'd give them the tools to go out and build their own supersonic aircraft. Right. 
you could scale this up, but it wouldn't be a very practical shape for a business jet sure. or an airliner. Right. Does a company pay for that? Uh, no. You, the taxpayers pay for this. all that research, and, you know, the whole idea is to spur on, you know, new markets and new wow. new ways of That's thinking. Pretty, so, it's yeah. pretty cool. So, Rob, you've flown to the So Falcon. You, you've flown the A380. You ready to take a stick on this? Um, I'll, yeah, and I, I'll be there for that simulator uh, right off the bat. Um, <laughs> put me in that sim, and I'll have some fun. Uh, uh, the actual airplane, um, I'm not checked out on an ejection seat, so I would be completely <laughs> useless. Uh, you know, I, and beside the fact, I cry very easily, and that would be really embarrassing. So, Nils, clue, did, did we miss anything? The reason, you know, there's a ban out there on, you know, the, the, you know, the reason we can't do that now is there's been a ban on supersonic flight for 50 years. So started in 73, you know, so basically it's a sound problem, but we limit the speed. So our thing is, well, we kind of want the sound limit to be a sound limit, not a speed limit. Forever, you know, forever since we started building airplanes, we were going faster and faster and faster until we hit that okay, now people are disturbed by the noise, you know, so how do we how do we get over that so we can get people to grandma's house twice as fast now? So that's probably, you know, the biggest thing that I can think of is getting rid of, you know, essentially we're getting the data that eventually we hand to the regulators and go, here's what we think you can do. And then it's their job to then turn around and change the regulation. Well, I got to I gotta thank you guys for a couple of things. First of all, I got to thank you. I, I, I think about the Concord and when that stopped flying and it was the first time that i remember in history where we took a technological step backwards and i want to thank you for bringing us forward again uh that's really amazing and wonderful and i'm really pleased that we're able to do this and thank you for all your work in doing it and thank you for being a guest with us here in the airplane geeks sure and if thanks for having us if your uh, listeners want to kind of follow along in in our journey here with us one of the best places to go is nasa.gov slash Quest, but Quest is spelled with two S's, like supersonic. Q-U-E-S-S-T. Yeah. See, and I thought that was a typo on our notes. No, uh-uh. no, not. no. It, uh, and it's, they update that all the time. So if you want to see how we're going, how far along we are, are we into taxi test yet, or, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, you can always keep coming back. There's other interesting little things, like for people that are out there uh, for first flight, you know, they have a little thing where you can get a what they call a boarding pass so that your name will go on a flash drive that the dog will take in the cockpit with him so that you can go along with, a, with him on the, the first flight. So uh, so there's there's a couple of little things that are interesting. You can uh, if you got a 3D printer, you can download uh, the plans. plans to go print yourself your own X-59. We'll talk to Brian about that. Absolutely. Our former associate producer can do that for us. Uh now we're we're talking. This is January of 2024, and this has been many years in the making yeah. to get to this it point, has. hasn't it? So, when did this concept first come to be at NASA uh, before anything else happened? Probably over 20 years ago, there was a a project called the uh, Shaped Sonic Boom or Shaped Boom yeah. Demonstrator. SBD. Yeah. yeah. There was a an F5, and they put a, a new nose on the aircraft. It was kind of a big, long, bulbous nose to try to shape the the beginning shock, the first shock waves that are on the aircraft. And they proved that that worked. They were able to reduce the sonic boom signature of the front shock. 
That was only half the problem, though. You've still got the whole rest of the airplane. But they realized, okay, we can do this. If we built an airplane from scratch, we could now quiet the whole thing. Yeah. Um, at the time, money ran out. There wasn't uh, the interest in doing it. But uh, they've kind of known that for 20 years. And as we uh, continued along doing more research and improving computer predictions, it, it just got to be the time where there's high confidence that we could build an airplane from scratch with a fully shaped sonic boom that was really more of a sonic thump. There were smaller projects along the way, like uh, Quiet Spike, if you go out there and look at that, which was an F-15 that had a nose that would extend. Uh, um, there was uh, another program that I first did when I got here. They called it Lancets, and that looked at the lift distribution to try, to try and take care of that, that tail shock a little bit. So there were a lot of little projects and eventually they looked and they said, the only way we can now keep advancing is we have to build a purpose-built demonstrator. And back in uh, 2018, 18. they let the contract. But even before that, Clue and I were writing the, the requirements for the airplane and all that before they ever put the contract out. And they had some design competitions even before that as they looked at, you know, uh, various companies of how you would go, you know, fulfill these wishes if we we're ever going to go build one of these things. This is pretty neat. Once again, thank you guys so much. I, I see that, you know, we're getting to that time and I know you guys need to take a break. So thank you so much for joining us and uh, great guests. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks again for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We're grateful to NASA for making Nils and Clue available to us. Be sure to see the show notes for this episode at airplanegeeks.com slash 782, where we've posted some photos, links to the project resources, and a video of the official NASA rollout of the X-59 Quest supersonic aircraft. Now, have a question or comment? Email us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Bye.